Hey, this is Andy Jenkins. Welcome to the podcast. I want to do something this week that I haven't done in... Actually, I don't don't think I've ever done this ever on this podcast. Here's what happened. A few weeks ago, I went into the sound recording studio at Sound of Birmingham here locally and read the book Soul Wholeness. Now, as of the recording of this, that book is not yet even out. You can't can't get it, uh, which means the audiobook's not out. Strangely enough, a couple months ago, the first time we released an audiobook with one of the companies that I've I've done some work with, Oily App, we read the book and uploaded it, and I thought, oh, this will just be instant. And Audible does all of these audio checks and goes through the decibel levels and the recording and background noise and, oh man, all kinds of things. And so it just takes a little while. It almost takes longer to release, catch this, an audiobook than it does to release an actual print book. I mean, I, I can upload a print book right now and it'll be ready in 24 or 48 hours. Uh, audiobook <laughs> weeks and then corrections and then decibel levels and all of that so anyway this thing the audiobook is going to be available I, I think probably I'm targeting first of June the book's going to be r- available first of May but right now the video course it's ready and it is it is fired this is one of my favorite topics to teach is the soul because as in the previous podcast, I discussed we have a body. Everybody knows that. We have a spirit. That's the unique part of us that is connected to the Holy Spirit, to our Heavenly Father. And then we have this soul that's the mind, the emotions. Uh, and the, that soul is the part of us that is so much in process. And, and if you don't learn how to lead well in that area, it'll actually hijack all the other areas. So arguably, the spirit is the most important part. That is supposed to take the lead. But the soul's important too. That is how we express ourselves in the world. That is how we take in data and information and connection from the world and from the people around us. And so all of these areas are important. It's just that soul seems to be the one that gets wounded the most. And so here's what I want to do. In this episode, I'm going to just play the audio from the audiobook from Introduction Part C, where I talk about my background in this and and how I came to take a psych evaluation and then what I learned from that process. And I'm playing this because I don't want you to be afraid of exploring the area of soul wholeness. And also, I want to toss out that idea that, you know, so often when people write or they teach, you think that they're only teaching from the area in which they have expertise because they have a degree. A lot of times, in my experience, I'm writing and teaching things that I need to know for me and hopefully that helps a lot of other people because we have so much in common. So I'd love for you to listen into this. If you'll go to the link in the show notes, you can find a link to take the PTSD self-check. It is a 10 question, yes, no. It will take you two minutes, quick evaluation, yes, no, and it'll just help you assess where you are. That'll make a lot more sense after you listen to this episode. Um, But take that, links in the show notes. Also, I'd love for you to, to consider tackling that 14 video, four hour 
course. Uh, it's on demand. You can watch, rewatch as many times as you want. As soon as you get it, you've got instant and forever access. Uh, and there's some bonuses there too. Uh, for instance, all the audiobook files. The, the 14 video course is not me uh, reading the book and me reading the book is not the 14 video course. That course is me teaching uh, concepts from the material and then the audiobook is the audio of the book. Uh, all connected, all related together, but definitely different experiences and ways of taking the information in. All right, here it is. I'm gonna roll right into this. I'll be back at the end of this episode. This is the audio file from the audiobook of Soul Wholeness. Here's part C and how I got into all of this. Here you go. C. I took a psyche vow. Main idea. Two of the joys we most crave, freedom from guilt and shame and authentic community, exist in the place which seems scariest, the light. Those who are willing to go there discover true freedom comes not in hiding, but in realizing there's nothing more to cover up. September 2018, I did something I never imagined I would do. I took a psychological evaluation, a full one, the kind with hundreds of questions followed by a sit-down interview with a licensed psychologist. To say it another way, I voluntarily took one of those tests that cost several hundred dollars and can label you for the rest of your life. Again, I asked to take it. Here's why. Smack dab in my mid-40s, I effectively averted the typical midlife crisis by living a few tough years. Most people knew nothing of the trauma and trials I endured, but the pain was there. Every few months, I spoke about pieces of my story from the stage in an event where I spoke, or I offered a glimpse inside my world via my podcast or some other venue where I taught. Looking back in the rearview mirror of my life, I realized I had endured enough to knock someone off their feet and into the grave. I mean it. The grave. At one point, several years ago, I actually contemplated taking my own life. Knowing life insurance policies like mine carry exclusion clauses which automatically negate the payoff in cases of suicide, I planned the ordeal in my mind down to enough detail to make it emphatically not look like suicide at all. But then I got better. And then, as often happens once you taste a bit of victory, the bottom of life fell out, like the proverbial plank dangling over the edge of the pirate ship. Turns out, I'd learned to manage fruits without addressing the roots. No worries if that sounds like I'm speaking Klingon. I'll come back to the root-fruit issue in chapter 12. I was regularly visiting a counselor when I took the eval. In fact, the eval was such a serious deal, I needed to get a referral to get it. So the PhD I was seeing did the honors. That counselor happened to be the second professional I scheduled regular meetings with in an 18-month period. I abandoned the first after learning that although he presented himself as a therapist, he had no credentials at all. That's right, zero. The first guy, though tender and kind, regularly overstepped professional and ethical guidelines by providing legal advice and offering false wisdom, which clearly landed far beyond his skill set. Ironically, I was referred to him by a friend of his who was, who is, a licensed counselor and, to my knowledge, also assumed he was credentialed. Kind-hearted and well-intentioned, he proved disastrous. So, I found the second guy, Michael, someone whom I verified possessed the credentials and had enough history to help me move forward. 
After a few sessions, he assured me, there's nothing wrong with you psychologically. You've just made a series of poor decisions. Some of those are understandable, not excusable, but understandable in light of the circumstances you faced. I mentally retraced the past few years, cataloging each significant event in just a few microseconds. The past doesn't excuse us, but it does explain some of our decisions. But, but I need to know if something is wrong with me, I told him. I need to see for myself. Then, if there isn't, okay. If there is, I'm going to address it and get help. I'm, I'm not looking for a diagnosis, but I'm not trying to avoid one either. I just want to intentionally walk in wholeness. Okay, he said. Let's do it. With my insistence, Michael referred me to Jeff, a licensed doc with a long list of credentials, numerous referrals, and his own history of helping people navigate the tough terrain of mental and emotional health. I returned from speaking at Advance 10.0 in Minnesota on a Monday afternoon. I rushed my boys to scouts to earn a citizenship in the community merit badge that evening and then arrived at Jeff's clinic south of Birmingham the following morning at 7 a.m. for the eval. It was a whirlwind. And then I waited. A few weeks later, I received a phone call. Can you come in later this week? It was Jeff, the doctor. I assumed he was calling to discuss the details of my evaluation with me, but he wasn't. I, I contemplated not going back in for a moment. The first time I visited him for the eval, I went to the office where I was working with a nonprofit to create some tools on, get this, emotional and mental health. But that morning, in the office, a runner served me with legal papers. I was being sued by someone, my ex-wife, who promised me just a few weeks earlier that she wasn't my enemy and could always be trusted. What a poo storm of a few days. After a few moments on the phone, I came back to the present moment. I asked Jeff point blank, do you have a diagnosis for me? No, I don't, he said. I don't have anything yet. I need more info from you. Your case is a bit complex, so I would like to interview you a second time. A second time, I thought? Most people simply take the test and then meet with the PhD or PsyD afterwards. Not me. My story was so technical that it necessitated a second discussion. Was I that messed up? I decided it didn't matter if I was or was not. If the goal is to walk in total health, you turn and face whatever stands in your way and you move through it. Not out of range. Yes, sir, I'll, I'll be glad to come back, I replied. Then I added, if something is wrong with me, I want to know what it is so I can address it and make it right. I'll meet with you as many times as you need. In that moment, I told myself, yes. Great, I'm finally moving forward in the right direction. I'm going to get this figured out, finally. And simultaneously, I thought, geez, I require more time and attention than most people. He's found something. But turns out, he hadn't. Well, that's technically not true. He didn't offer a formal diagnosis, but he did find something. After another 90 minutes in his office, Jeff told me, you're not out of range, so I'm not comfortable diagnosing you. That said, you do have some things that caught my attention. What do you mean by out of range, I asked. 
People assume that psychological disorders are either a yes or no proposition, he said. That you're either a narcissist or you're not. That you're either a hypochondriac or you're not. That you're either an introvert or an extrovert. That you either have post-traumatic stress or you don't. That you either... People see it all as black and white, as opposites, I asked. That's kind of how I do. Yes, he continued, but it's not like that at all. He began drawing an imaginary scale sideways in the air with his hands. Think of it like this. Now, now there is a chart, an image here that I've put in the book, the paperback that I'm about to describe uh, that Jeff was motioning and creating. Uh, He explained that on one end of the line, you have a totally healthy person. And on the other end, you have a completely unhealthy person. As far as that one issue goes... The MMPI, the standard test I took, it measures for numerous psychological disorders, meaning you might be healthy in one area, but unhealthy in another. That that is, the evaluation instrument isolates different issues, and the test is clever enough to tell whether or not you're lying or even self-protecting from the administrator of the test when you take it. Brilliant, right? Well, Jeff continued, Most people don't fall on either extreme. I mean, they don't fall off the one side where they're completely unaffected by something. In fact, that would be unhealthy in and of itself. For instance, the extreme opposite of narcissism wouldn't be healthy either. It would mean that the person probably lacks self-worth and a healthy sense of their identity. As I nodded in agreement, beginning to understand what he was saying, he continued, But most people don't fall in the range where I or any other professional would diagnose them. There are a lot of people on social media using terms like narcissism and gaslighting and abuse who really have no idea what those words mean. In fact, many of the people who use those words the most are the biggest culprits. I don't like it when people use those terms, I confess. They use them like grenades and generally launch them at someone they had a disagreement with. That's only part of the problem, he said. Another part of it is that most of the people who use those words completely misdefine them. They use them as hot words without any true definition, or even worse, they supply their own definition. No one gets to rewrite the dictionary. He continued, Another issue is that because they misdefine the words, and because they most often, you might even say always, use them in a negative sense, it keeps people who are truly struggling with the issues from seeking help. That all makes sense, I told him. People get understandably nervous when they think they might have a physical issue to deal with, but we don't attack them or assume inherent character flaws exist. With mental and emotional things, we automatically do. Well, that's the other part of it misdefinition of it all makes people afraid of exploring an area in which most of us could truly benefit from a little help. How does this relate to me personally? I asked. That's a good question, he said. Your test came back and revealed a few things. Like, well, he continued, first of all, you were a bit defensive. How so? I just answered a few questions with a pencil and a paper before we had the interview. I know, he continued. The test showed that, though. There are questions built in to screen that. You've been through a lot in the past few years, so this makes sense. It shows me that you're carrying some tension, some nervousness in general. I thought for a moment. Once again, replaying various scenarios like the highlight reel of a horror flick for a few moments. I'd been a stress ball for quite some time, always bracing for when I was going to get emotionally punched again. Then I asked him, well, what else? You're not diagnosable for anything. 
but I can tell you the things you probably struggle with. For the next 15 to 20 minutes, I listened to Jeff graciously outline some of the deepest struggles I had, some of the same issues the people closest to me would understand once explained. Yet, I'd never heard someone detail them with such accuracy, with such honor, and with such tenderness. At some point, you had to crash, he said. There's no way you could keep carrying this weight. Now that you're here, though, at the bottom, we can rebuild, and we can rebuild in the right way. Jeff told me that many people never seek help precisely because their cases aren't extreme enough to warrant a formal diagnosis, yet at the same time, they've been affected and wounded. I thought about it. I'm not a psychologist, a counselor, or anything of the sort. In my mind, it all made sense, though. If you're looking at a scale of 1 to 10, and you need an 8 to receive a diagnosis, what do you do if you're just a 7? Or what if you're a 5 and you're only halfway there? A halfway broken bone is considered a fracture. A halfway knocked out boxer often has a concussion. A halfway working lung, kidney, or physical heart is, well, you might or might not even survive those halves. So why don't we apply the same criteria to emotional or mental hurts as we do physical ones? It means you go undiagnosed. And you, if you don't pay attention, you live with an undiagnosable struggle. The backstory. For years, probably a decade or more, my wife told me I needed to share my story with others. There's power in it and healing, she encouraged. Your words will set people free. She felt certain that owning my story would set me free too. The problem was that my story was, well, I, I didn't want to confront it. I didn't want to admit what was there buried somewhere between all the pages. In order to share your story with others, you've got to admit that it is, in fact, your story. Parts of mine were hurtful, painful, and self-incriminating. Parts of it were embarrassing. They were, at the time, anyway. I was afraid that in sharing, I would suddenly find myself not accepted, but rejected. And, as you might imagine from a guy who reveals that he's defensive on a psyche vow, relationships have been a fragile thing for me. I didn't want to deal with the distance with which people often inflict punishment when you disappoint them. Rather than dealing with the truth and moving into the light, I was content to live in the shadows. As such, I got cozy there. I made my home in the dark for decades. Trouble is, there's no freedom in the places we hide, just a lot of fear. Whereas we think that walking into the light causes fear and that living in the hidden places provides safety, the opposite is true. 1 John 1, 7 through 7-9 is a passage that's come to mean a great deal to me. Quote, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scripture promises us that when we walk into the light, in the open, two things happen, cleansing and community. John refers to community as fellowship. Let's briefly talk about each because this is profoundly true. Whether you ascribe to the teachings of the Bible or not, this simply works. First, cleansing. Remarkably, 1 John is written to Christians, people who were already forgiven. That might cause us to think that cleansing is done because God sees us as clean. 
Apparently, John's tribe needed an ongoing experience of the Lord's work in them. The truth needed to transform from information they held in their head to revelation they experienced in their heart. Something held them back from the freedom they were redeemed to experience. They needed an encounter which would allow them to feel in their heart the truth they knew in their head. Second, community. When we wear masks or live in those hidden places, we don't really know if people love us for who we are or if they love the false self we've projected. It's only when we walk into the open that we truly know each other, and it's only then that we experience the gift of true acceptance. John promised his friends that if they would walk into the light, the right people would embrace them. They would no longer feel alone. They would experience the community they desperately craved. Heads up, we'll talk about the false self we create in chapter 6. Well, for years, I shared only the parts of my story I wanted others to see. The good parts, the places where I had it all together. You may have seen those pieces of my story and applauded or liked it or hearted it or laughed or cheered. The fact that I simultaneously struggled doesn't make those great parts less true for me any more than it makes the notion that your struggles make your highlights unreal either. We're far more complex than we often realize. In my life, those broken places occasionally surfaced. After all, bad trees, or at least trees with chronic disease, bear bad fruits. The same symptoms continued resurrecting themselves in my life. Things like anger, lying, financial dishonesty, a roller coaster marriage marked by as many lows as highs, fractured friendships, trust issues, difficulty letting people close, pride and posturing, spinning to make reality seem better than it is, Foreclosures, as in three, bankruptcy, depression. It's hard to feel on top of the world when you live in the shadows and safeguard so much clutter in there with you. Whenever any of these things surfaced, I quickly put out the fire, rationalized how the current circumstances created a no-win situation for me, and then hid the debris. Most people knew nothing of this. I always moved on with life, each time hitting a pause button on the chaos before watching an even bigger issue surface within the next few years. The more I prolonged dealing with the root issues and focused only on the fruits, the deeper those roots grew. They became stronger and they made their presence known. Those issues always resurfaced at the most inopportune times, too. Crisis is never convenient. In fact, trials often come during what seemed to already be the most challenging times. Over time, I developed a fear that maybe one day I would have plenty of time to share my story. And that when I did, I'd probably write it while in prison or share it with others at a rehab from some place like the local mission a few miles from my house, a place where guys learn about Jesus all day, spend their nights and Saturdays working at the nonprofit's thrift store, then get to visit their families for a few hours every other Sunday. I know, sounds weird, looks weirder to actually type it. No secrets. For years, I was afraid what might happen if I just shared my story. I was afraid others would shun me. I was afraid my wife would disown me. I was convinced that in the end, it would be just me and my story standing there all alone. The truth is that the accuser always accuses, always has, always will. Long after the payment for sin has been made, he continues accusing. Until his dying day, he'll continue escalating the chatter or, at least, he'll try to. 
Jesus knew this. As he approached Holy Week, he told his disciples, Satan has nothing on me, John 14, 30. There was no secret thing the accuser could pull from the closet of Christendom and toss into the middle of his story. There was no scandal, no hidden skeleton, no untold event. Our lives aren't quite that pristine. Dig long enough and you can find something on anyone. In my case, you wouldn't need to dig too deep or push too hard. What's the path forward? Ironically, freedom isn't found in burying the clutter deeper. That just takes the roots deeper and makes them stronger. No, freedom is found in bringing everything to the surface right there where everyone can see it in the light. Sounds scary, doesn't it? Again, freedom isn't found in hoping that no one finds out. Freedom is found when there's nothing more to hide. When the skeletons in the closet no longer have a stranglehold on you. We'll discuss this more in chapter 15. Of all things, the Holy Spirit showed me something about this while watching an unholy movie, and he highlighted the solution. Here's what happened. One weekend, I skimmed my Netflix suggestions and zoned in on 8 Mile, a film in which rapper Eminem plays Jimmy Smith Jr., a young man who desperately wants to leave the boundaries of Detroit and move towards his dreams and destiny. Jimmy finds himself competing in a rap contest, the kind which pits two artists against each other. The rules are somewhat strange. The rapper who insults the other the most wins. So, with the beat blaring behind them, artists accuse one another of their public flaws and their hidden failures. It's basically Deviledom 101. During the final showdown, Jimmy flips the script, though. Rather than insulting his opponent, he focuses only on revealing all of his own faults. He raps about his poverty, the fact that he's a different race, the truth that his girlfriend cheated on him and that he got jumped and robbed a few days ago. In doing so, he effectively disarms the enemy, plundering him of his complete arsenal of ammunition. When Jimmy finishes, there's nothing else that can be said. He concludes his routine, taunting his foe, now tell them something they don't know about me. Eminem tosses him the mic. His only ammunition now stripped from him, the opponent grows more embarrassed by the moment. The opponent, Clarence, sheepishly hands the mic back over. There's nothing more to say. There's nothing left to accuse. Eminem plundered the enemy of his power by saying everything that could be said about him on his own. To quote Jesus, the accuser has nothing on me. You can get to that place by living a perfect life that leaves nothing to accuse like Jesus, or you can get there by unloading it all before the accuser can. Most of us have a trail of debris in our past, leaving us with option two. Clarifying what it means. Jesus told Nicodemus, a Pharisee who searched him out one night to speak to him about new life, that people who want freedom walk into the light so that, quote, their deeds might be exposed, John 3, 21. They don't hide. And John told us, we just looked at it, that cleansing a community occur in the light, 1 John 1, 7 through 9. So let's clarify what it means to walk into the light. Most of us don't need to stand on stage and wrap out the highlight reel of our flaws, bearing and bearing your soul for the masses. That's not the means I suggest you use to find wholeness. I define walking in the light as this, allowing the light to penetrate every dark corner and crevice of your soul so that you might see what's there, deal with it, and find freedom. 
Walking in the light isn't so much a public display of your junk as it is a private penetration of the secret spaces. Oddly enough, our hypersharing place it all on social media for everyone to see can actually mitigate against walking in the light. You can drop a note on social media and overshare parts of your life, effectively not sharing them at all. How so? Well, when you drop a post for a few thousand strangers to see, you offload the info, but you don't necessarily do anything with it. You just set it out there. You feel like you've done the tough work. The hearts and thumbs seem to confirm that you have, but you haven't. Most of the people who like and heart and even comment and attaboy know nothing of your story. They're just being kind. Transparency doesn't mean disclose everything to everyone. It means you disclose everything to the people closest to you, that there are no secrets in those open spaces. In his book, Culture of Honor, Danny Silk communicates this truth with an incredibly easy-to-understand analogy. He writes something like, if you're painting your house and you create a spill in the kitchen, you don't clean up the bedroom, you clean the kitchen. He adds, you might alert people who walk into the kitchen that you've just mopped the floor, that they need to be careful they don't slip and fall. Then you wouldn't necessarily hang a slippery when wet sign in the garage or grab a megaphone and shout down the street about your accident to all your neighbors. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? The people who get to know are the people who need to know. And maybe a few others, but that's about it. I outline it like this. First, a few people get everything. They get to know every secret, hidden fault, flaw, and hurt. Nothing is withheld from them. This includes your spouse, significant other, your closest friends, and perhaps a few family members. This is an extremely small group of people. They will graciously highlight your blind spots, encourage you, and empower you to live as the best version of yourself. Second, some people get most things. That is, there are people who aren't in your inner circle who still receive access to significant parts of your story. For instance, I generally fill close business partners in on some of my recent clutter simply so they know where I've been. It gives them a grid whereby they can understand my current mindset and some of the decisions that I make. Third, many people get some things. Over time, you might share parts of your life with others, with people in small groups, recovery centers, or even from a stage or social media. Fourth, most people get nothing. The reality is that although the situations you face are extremely important to you, they barely face anyone else at all. They're busy clearing or festering about their own debris. Lean hard on the first group, the small nucleus, and when their time comes to deal with their own hard things, and it will, hold them even harder and closer than they hold you. Again, the tendency in our culture is to hide and then overshare. We tend to overshare with the masses while hiding our hearts at a distance from those who remain closest to us. In a way, we confess and get things off our chest, but the relationships are never healed. We end up hiding behind a mask of false vulnerability. It's easy to do, especially when we get likes, shares, and comments from strangers about what we've walked through. I know, there's some degree of irony in giving you this advice while I'm telling you parts of my story in a public venue. I mean, geez, I just put my stuff in print. It's different here, though, 
because I feel like part of my job, my calling, is to communicate and show others how to navigate their own terrain so that they can do so on their own terms when they're ready. It's easier to do that if I can communicate something to the effect of, here, here's where I've been and here's how I've handled it. And what happens next is, somewhere I read, you're in control of you. I've read that several times, in fact. And though it sounds true, it's a bit naive. Here's reality. There are massive chunks of my story over which I have complete control. At the same time, I, like you, live in real time and space where other people's decisions radically affect my future, the well-being of my family, and even my financial outlook. I can choose to live as a victim of the circumstances I must endure, or I can choose to live above them to live free even as I walk through them. Sometimes we're given a script we don't want to play. We find ourselves in a scene in which we adamantly don't want to be. We can still emerge stronger though, and we will. We'll discuss the how-to for this dilemma and other aspects of soul wholeness in the next few pages. Okay, so there, there it is. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. As Dennis Miller used to say a long time ago, I just dated myself on Saturday Night Live. He used to say that, uh, and and that I, I hope you see, you know, this area, it is an area where we all have wounds, we all have flaws, we all have struggles. Yet there's so much opportunity for us to each grow, to explore, to experience more. And there is this verse in Scripture, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that talks about not being conformed to the world around us. And we would all agree with that, regardless of our specific beliefs. You know, I I know generically a lot of us that listen in here are the same. We have some different nuances politically and even some different things faith-wise that we would tend to disagree on. We could all agree, though, that (laughs) we don't want to be conformed to the pattern of this world. And Paul goes on in that Romans 12 verse, and he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's part of the soul, to be transformed. So anyway, go down to the link in the show notes, free PTSD self-check. Also, uh, we'd love for you to latch on and grab hold of the video course and the audio book that comes along with that. All of the information is there for you below. My prayer for you always as a sign off is that the Lord would bless you He would keep you, he'd be gracious to you, he would shine his face a favor on you and that you would feel that light even penetrating now in those deep, dark, hurt places. And as that light moves in, may you feel, as is the case with physical light, that light always, it doesn't struggle, it just shines and the darkness just graciously moves away. May you see, sense and feel that in your own spirit and soul, even now. Grace and peace, I'll see you again soon.